0: Coming up on episode 56 of the Upful Life Podcast.
1: It's so easy improvising with people like that. It's the same thing with Bobby Previtt or Matt Chamberlain, drummer in Crittersboggan, or Bobby Previtt in Omaha Diner and various groups. Ponga is that they're, that the three of those drummers, they are composers in their, in their own right. They, they write, they write music. And even more importantly, they're highly compositional improvisers. They're just constantly outlining perfectly everything. The path is just being made constantly with the foundation of the drums, the way they improvise. It's just, you know, I'm just constantly at maze. the three of those people particularly. It's just, it's it's a whole nother level of improvising that's which, and it's a kind of improvising that I like which is highly compositional. So it sounds like writing, sounds like pre-written material but it's completely improvised. So it has the best of both worlds, right? Yeah, I really wish that band was together today in in certain ways because I feel there's a whole nother, I feel like there's a whole new awareness of funk and hip hop and played by jazz musicians that's really popular and I think, you know, no one did it like the the Taint. Mm-hmm.
0: yes indeedy welcome to the up life podcast i'm your host b gets and this is episode number 56 coming at you live and direct from the vibe junkie studios in oakland california five six all up in your mix And it's just about time for Jazz Fest. So grateful you are tuning in. Yes, indeedy. It is my honor and privilege to welcome the one and only Skerek to episode 56 of the Helpful Life podcast. And it's hard to know where to start with this cat. But you're going to find out a whole lot about his career and his journey and his perspective and mindset. But I can't really give you a synopsis of his Of his career in a short introduction on a podcast, I'm going to hit the SkerrickMusic.com about page and read just a little bit of his uh, lengthy bio. Decade upon decade, Skerrick remains the tireless steward for one of modern music's most diverse, adventurous, and passionate bodies of work. Skerrick's world is one where dialogue flows freely between wildly disparate strains of musical thought, where no borders exist between jazz, sludge metal, where elements of Congolese Sukos dialect might find their way onto the million-selling records of an alternative rock band, where an avant-garde electronic translation of Ornette Coleman's deepest and darkest fantasies, shared with a select few listeners in a small club, easily attains the same level of satisfaction and meaning as an exuberant explosion of jazz-funk catharsis shared with hordes of sweaty festival crowds all over the world. It is a world where all sounds may communicate freely with each other so long as they all originate from true inspiration and good faith they may encounter friction and chaos along the way eventually emerging in a shared harmonious understanding or perhaps they might remain in friction and chaos screaming in musical hellfire until the next chapter begins safety is never guaranteed in these woods but boredom will never rear its head that's a promise Woo that's that's good shit right there skerrick whoever wrote that bio for you tip of the kangol but uh you're listening to the latest garage a trois, garage a trois record calm down cologne started with the title track and uh, just segued into, what's this one called, in a pro pro. And these are improv jams, save for the title track. But we're going to hear all about the record. We're going to hear all about uh, Skerek's colorful, fantastic voyage, if you will. Some of the luminaries and collaborators that he touches on include Stanton and Charlie from OG Garage Trois. That's Stan Moore and Charlie Hunter. Of course, he talks more about Charlie's other projects like Omaha Diner and Coalition of the Willing. He talks about Ponga with Bobby Previtt. Uh, we get into deep into the syncopated taint septet, but I mean, we left a whole lot on the table too. You know, we talked a bit about his work with Mad Season and Lane Staley, Mike McCready and Barrett from Screaming Trees. Uh, the late Lane Staley from Alice in Chains, and of course, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam. Talked a little bit about Chris playing some of that music with the late Chris Cornell. And we also talked a little bit about Mark Lenigan, um, who passed away just a couple of weeks after this conversation. So um, I thought whether or not I should leave it in. But it's a beautiful sentiment from Skerrick with regard to Mark and his legacy and his music and his spirit. So, left it in. But it is a little bit of an emotional uh, bump in an otherwise pretty uh, standard, engaging music conversation with true icon, uh, legend of his time. Uh, Skerrick, Short I believe for Scary Eric or Ski Rack as Les Claypool like to call him. Found him at Jazz Fest many moons ago. That Garage de Trois show that opened for Oysterhead at my first Jazz Fest, which we talked about with Mike Dylan. And I've been following him ever since. But uh we don't really have a relationship, so this is more an interview than a conversation between friends. And he's a tough nut to crack, that Ski Rack. But uh I like to think we did okay once we got the engine turned over, so I hope you all enjoy it, Tried to put it together in time for people traveling to and from Jazz Fest, can't wait to see Skarek down in the Crescent City, and uh, yeah, that should do it for the introduction. Scarrick coming up, episode 56, Up Full Life Podcast, yes indeedy. All right, all right. Well, it's a long time in the making, an honor and a privilege today to welcome the great saxophonist Skerrick to the Upful Life podcast. What up, My man, I gotta tell you, it's like I do this you know for a living, but it it's never gets old to, to pop on and see somebody like yourself who I've been a fan of you know for over two decades and, and uh, seen the different twists and turns of your career. And collaboration so to have an opportunity to speak with you i interviewed you once on the phone a few years ago but you know just to, to see you and talk to you it's an honor and a privilege so thank you all right thank you yeah so just the other night uh mil uh, we were up in marin sweetwater got an opportunity to see uh the og garage de Trois. okay I, yeah yeah i went to the friday night show the the middle night
1: and then i watched the oh, live stream on saturday yeah, yeah,
0: it certainly was.
1: Yeah. Um, Friday was good. Thursday was r- rough.
0: <laughs>
1: why but, is that? Uh, just, just getting started? Though. Uh what
0: what makes yeah why are you look um, at Thursday like that?
1: You know, I'm just obsessing over that. I had a really um stiff read, really hard read, and it was it was it was really hard to, to play. It was like shouldn't do, I shouldn't do those things. <laughs> self-inflicted uh, wound
0: right on right on and then but you had it figured out by Friday. yep definitely cool well yeah it was just great to uh, it's just great to see music again obviously after the past couple of years and some starts and stops um, I wanted to ask you just uh, as somebody who makes you know makes their way in this world performing on stage what's it like right now uh, getting back out into the nightclubs? Uh, What was the vibe on stage and and how did you perceive the, you know, the audience in that regard?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, those guys have been playing more than me and, but I've been doing a fair amount of shows too, you know? Um, And it's, uh, it's kind of back to normal for me. It doesn't feel as strange before, but, the problem is i'm not doing 200 shows a year you know for the past two two and a half years and um that has really taken a toll physically so trying to get back into shape you know just it's just really it's really hard you know not where i want to be at all you know so Sure. But this, the, the Garage of Ta shows were good in that regard. It's just like I, but, you know, I'm trying to train, trying to exercise every day and trying to get something going on. I just, it's just, oh man, it's just, there's nothing like, you know, I can practice every day in my studio here and it just doesn't, it's not the same as playing live at all. Yeah, know? I'm sure.
0: It sounds like not unlike a athletic sports team, you know, you like you got to play in the season and practice and keep yourself in like a physical mental yeah. space. So the the long gaps between performances, I guess is not unlike, you know, an athlete in that regard, but I don't think fans yeah. consider that. So it's an important thing to raise. I think a lot of fans just think snap of the fingers, you sell some tickets, you get back on stage, you pick up where you left off in 2019. <laughs> And it it obviously doesn't work like that. But from the audience perspective, I mean Friday night was fantastic. Uh wouldn't have known that there was any rust or any like, you know, struggling to to pick up, you know, your yeah. pace. I mean, we didn't feel that in the audience at all. And, and you okay. talk you talk about the chemistry. I've I've listened to some interviews and read about the chemistry between, you know, Stanton and Charlie and yourself and those guys. Um, that's gotta play into it, right? Like the the history the chemistry enables you to maybe get up to speed a little quicker than you might otherwise with other cats
1: yeah i mean it's pretty it we have a a thing that's ready to go but um it's also very challenging playing with with those guys so it's a it's a double-edged story there's familiarity but there's also a really high level that has to be um, achieved, you know, to hang, <laughs> Sure, you know, it's like, it's, yeah, it's not, you know, it's not messing around at all. It takes a lot of preparation for me and, and a lot of focus to, to pull that, to pull off playing with those guys, you know, I mean, it's I just can- so this is a whole nother thing, but, you know, and I am glad people, um, you know, it, it's hard when you you asked about the COVID thing, you know, I look up in Marin County, I was like, Oh, it's 92% vaccination rate, et cetera. You know, you kind of look at statistics and the, the club. I mean, people have been buying tickets and not showing up there. So it's, um, you know, it's difficult in, in that regard, it's kind of hard to figure out how to play, but, and I don't want to be this, a person that's just, you know, well, I need to play, you know, it's like, I don't care about people's health, you know? Right. So it's, it's tricky. You know, I definitely don't want to come off as like, like that you know but i mean you know, i just communicate a lot with the locals and and people in a certain market before we agree to play somewhere you know is this a good idea is this a responsible thing And you know people are wearing masks most of the time saturday night there was you know a bunch of people that weren't i, I would have preferred that you know people everyone especially in a smaller club when you're you know i want everyone to be looking out for each other and you know you know it's if we want live music to continue and flourish and, and get back get back to it, it you know we need to be responsible and do things differently than in the past
0: i thought that the mask wearing at your show was was more than the norm in my experience on friday night uh, Yeah, i thought that I saw more masks per capita than than normal. And I live in Oakland. So we, you know, when we do go to concerts, we're going to the Black Cat or the Boom Boom Room or the Fillmore. And I didn't see it so much as I did the other night. So that was encouraging. And yeah, I was looking at pictures of like most deaf and Talib Kwali in Paris last week. And every audience member is masked in France.
1: Well, that might have been was that was that at a theater? Yeah. So, that's different, too, because when you're at a club like Boom Boom Room or Sweetwater, it's, it's a club where people are drinking. Right. So, they're taking their masks off and drinking, you know, whereas a theater, you know, they're drinking before or after and, you know, maybe they don't serve in the theater, you know what I mean? So... I think it's easier to be masked but I mean obviously in Paris it's a whole different there's different rules and stuff there too With regard to like
0: the music itself with Grajatoa the the current and original incarnation um I found that the the All Cooked Out you know I know Mystery Funk is the first record but All Cooked Out is kind of the genesis of this collaboration and connection and well those two records were made at the same time okay um you you went in there to do the all cooked out and then ended up making mystery funk is that
1: yeah yeah we had an extra day in the studio and um we're like oh let's let's just uh let's mess around and you know record just improvise and do some do some different stuff because we'd done a lot of songs the pre-written material, you know, right? Before, that's where that that's where that came from, and it was just the three of us too. Whereas the All Cooped Out had special guests on a bunch of songs, right? Yeah. But you play a lot
0: of the All cooked Out material, or a good chunk of it, in this,
1: you know, OG GAT, yeah, configuration. Yeah, we, we like uh, we we sip on the uh nostalgia bottle and bust it out for people you know some of those teams I like some of those teams and I don't get to play them anywhere else so cool for me to play him again you know 20 years later however many years later yeah 20 Mm -hmm. 22
0: 23 years later and i was gonna (laughs) say it's but the the new stuff with calm down cologne you know it it fits right into that groove And, and i was doing a little homework on it i understand that uh you didn't really go into the studio
1: with songs for the new record save for the title track am i right Exactly yeah Charlie wanted to uh he just wanted to improvise <music> we had been, we were doing a three night run at Nectar in Seattle and it was the Sunday and we'd been doing a lot of improvising at the shows, which was really fun. And so he didn't, yeah, he didn't want to do a song thing and, you know, and he's, he writes a lot too. So I thought, I thought that was an interesting choice and really cool too. And we had the perfect engineer for that too, Randall Dunn's. He's always about capturing improvisation. And then and so after we do all that, I've been doing this stuff since you know the early 90s, just going through all of these going through all the roughs, you know, after the session and and then marking all the good spots and then carving out that, you know, like, oh, this is good. <clears throat> you know from from 9 minutes 23 seconds to 14 11 this is a great chunk here on real two you know and so then the, all the editing and you know and muting and mixing can happen after that the same with critter's buggin and, and dark wave and stuff like that you know sound cipher those other bands of mine it's like tracking the improvisation and then polishing it up, making it, you know, into a finished, finished form, you know? So it's, yeah, it's a very different record than all cooped out, but um, I, yeah, really, everyone's really into how it came out. Super excited about it, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great record and I, I think it, you exist alongside of all cooped out in a sense that it just the players and the sort of evolution um of each of you and then reconvening all these years later um i wanted to ask you you made a mention about the process of like sort of combing through the voluminous improvisations and sort of identifying and distilling the really potent parts is that something uh is that how you created critters bugging music also was it was it that modus operandi too
1: oh yeah yeah it was all we would just improvise for days and days and days and then go back and listen and kick out the bad stuff and keep the good stuff and then build upon that um we used a lot of loops and everything uh so we would build improvisations around loops, then go in and edit, do a lot of muting, cutting, a lot of overdubbing, you know, weeks and weeks of overdubbing and, and mixing and kind of like making a movie you know there's different there's different cuts and then you get to a certain cut and you send it to the 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 music composer for the score and then there's another cut made to that score and then there might be some other adjustments it's like a lot of back and forth it's really fun and um yeah ponga do would do that Ponga was completely improvised critters buggin started writing music later on but you know then you have then you know a record would come out and you try and learn those songs that you improvised and cut up and overdubbed it's it's really difficult You could, couldn't really do that with most of the music
0: i was going to ask you
1: about that like
0: how do you how do you then go and learn these these little sections that were lightning in a bottle right you just caught yeah. it and then you got to go back but my, my question with regard to that is Critter's bugging and and even Ponga we're talking years and years ago, you know Curtis especially into the mid '90s, right? So technology now I imagine it's a bit easier. You can sit at home with headphones and your computer, and comb through the jams and listen to the music and cut and paste them with uh, you know an arrow and a mouse. You weren't doing that back then. What what was what was the difference? Like how did you do this? modus operandi of of improv and then selecting in the technology of the
1: 90s yeah it was a lot different we did a lot more stuff in the studio listening together you know for hours and everything and then the engineers would give us dat mixes so we had dat tapes and we'd sit around and like So we would borrow someone's DAT player. I mean, I couldn't afford a DAT player back then. It was $1,000 or something. You know, it was uh, no way. And um, so we'd borrow a DAT player for someone and just listen. You know, I would just put the headphones on, listen for hours and hours and make extensive notes. Like I have notebooks full of, uh, you know, markings from that stuff. But it makes me think of that new Garage Atoile record, calm down cologne that the results that we came up with that day is like we would have never written that what came out of that there's 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 no way there's you know because uh the uh, our enge- the engineer Randall Dunn he brought in this really cool synthesizer this modal um 002 i think it is it's this uh, English synth hybrid synth and um i started playing that saxophone at the same time playing these little lines and so right there you're working within certain limitations right because i only have a range from f concert to um d actually e flat concert so a little under an octave chromatically with the synth if I'm playing one hand on the synth and one hand on the saxophone. So there's just all these things that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, I would never write that way, you know? Oh, I'm going to come up with a song that's only between F concert and, (laughs) you know, E flat concert, you know, it's just, you know what I mean? You would just never um, limit yourself to that. So working within limitations and working Uh, composing within the improvisational uh zone you know it's man you can get stuff that you know you would never come up with but you know i love the wayne shorter improvisation is composition sped up composition is improvisation slowed down two two ways to a similar result
0: It's, it's amazing to think of you with the horn in one hand and the keyboard in another, but um, you weren't doing that live. Is it, is it something that it, is it harder to reproduce in like a concert setting or uh you just focusing on the sax? Cause I was aware that you used the keyboard on the new calm down cologne record, but when you were performing, are you just playing those notes on the sax and just forgetting the keyboards? Well, we only play one song
1: from the new record, the title track, and, you know, yeah and, right okay, and, and you know you just you can't recreate that's that that's what that's another thing that makes that record so special is that you can't recreate it and you can't I mean we could sit around for days trying to you know learn that music and and play it again, but it'll it would never be the same, and that's been proven <laughs> many times tried with other bands you know it's right. It's like you said, the lightning in the bottle or trying to put the genie back in the bottle. It's it's like when people, it's like when fans request, you know, oh, why don't you do that band again? There's certain, certain people, certain combination of people. It's like, that was, you know, 15 years ago or that was 20 years ago. Like, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. You know, it's never going to be the same, you know, some some bands or some combinations of people you know might be able to be replicated and put back. You know, I certainly don't wouldn't want to discourage that in any way or you know, and I, I'm always down to try it, but there's some situations where it's absolutely it's like, no, that's not gonna work anymore. <laughs> right. Too many things have changed. Sure. And, and you know, and you're moving forward, you're looking
0: forward not necessarily trying to recreate something that happened before but then occasionally like with Garage Tois just organically come together to make music again and it's it's refreshing you know and and these are guys you didn't perform in this configuration for two decades you know did lots of Garage Tois but it was not this configuration so you arrive back at the embryo and realize it's still brand new again
1: yeah and it's and it's very much it, it it's very much has to do with where charlie is at now you know and he's just in this certain zone of playing and which allows for a group like this to play together again um because charlie and i always we've kind of kept playing the whole time right. in other things like we yeah. played together with with bobby Previtt. Oh my diner right well no well that too but the coalition of the willing right yeah and um you know charlie went out he did some we did some tours where he was just playing guitar playing like telecaster something uh, which was really interesting to hear and play with too Was very different experience and amazing too um but then and then we had the omaha diner band together too (laughs) we <laughs> So, you know, it was, it was cool. And then Stanton and I were always playing together, you know, with the other two versions of Garage Trois and all of our other little things, um, me playing on his various group, you know, his trio or uh, Eric Bloom and I would play with his trio, making the quintet and then the Alan Toussaint thing, different things like that. So when we come back together and play, it's very easy, but it's also where Charlie is at, wherever he's at, he's only going to play, you know, he's only going to play with certain people and certain kinds of music where he's at, at the present. You know what I mean? And this just happens to fit his frame of mind and, and where he wants to be musically right now. You know what I mean? That could change next month you know so i encourage people to come see the band now because <laughs> we might not you know might not play any shows next year you know right right
0: yeah i mean it was a blessing that you guys came back together at all and i'm glad that you booked something near me so i was able to experience it again i mean I, the first time i saw you it wasn't a trio you it was a quartet when you opened for the oyster head at the sanger theater that was my first jazz fest and that was like. A oh, yeah! Really incredible evening. And I'm not that music's a competition, but, you know, I'm a big fish fan. So what got me there was Oysterhead. But when I left that theater, I was talking about Garage de Trois. I mean, that was what stuck with me that night. And really it's like kind of, you know, opened the door for me to come back to New Orleans every year and introduced me to all the players in the group. And, you know, since then I've been following each of you individually in all these various endeavors, which is again, why it's kind of heartwarming to see at the end of this very, well, I say at the end after an extremely trying period of time, it's just, you know, it's like emotionally heartwarming to see old friends like you all come back together Um, and perform this music for us. And, you know, I'm just grateful for that. And I don't want you to think that fans take it for granted. I mean, I hope that people heed your uh, call to come to the gigs because it it delivered. And, and man, I'm just really thankful that I got to see you perform in that context again. But I've also seen you perform in, like I said, numerous other ones. And uh, I wanted to maybe touch on you. You mentioned Darkwave. Uh, another improvisational band with three very unique, accomplished virtuosos. Um, how do you step into that context differently, whether it's from mindset, musically, personalities wise, also a trio, also legends? How does that work for you in that in that world? Well,
1: that's easy. The, you know, though. The, the thing with um, Dark Wave is Adam Deitch. And John Modesky and I, for people that don't know. So it's a trio. We have a record out on Royal Potato Family. It's called The Purge. And it, it's so happy how that came out. But I mean, it's so easy improvising with people like that. It's the same thing with Bobby Previtt or Matt Chamberlain, drummer in Critters or Bobby Previtt in Omaha Diner and various groups. Ponga, is that they that the three of those drummers they are composers in their in their own right they they write they write music and even more importantly they're highly compositional improvisers they're just constantly outlining perfectly everything the path is just being made constantly with the foundation of the drums the way they improvise it's just you know i'm just constantly amazed the three of those people particularly it's just it's it's a whole nother level of improvising that's which and it's a kind of improvising that i like which is highly compositional so it sounds like writing sounds like pre-written material but it's completely improvised so it has the best of both worlds right and then Modesky, it's just you know there's he doesn't really need anybody else so i just stay out of the way it's kind of like charlie right (laughs) you know they can they're they're playing two instruments at once and just defining harmony and and rhythm and flavor and sonic things and Everything. So everything is there. It's just, it's very easy, you know, and it's really fun and it's very challenging. So Darkwave, we just went into the studio in June and recorded a new record. Sweet. Um, So, yeah, because we have some acoustic stuff where it's grand piano, drums and saxophone and then all the crazy electric stuff where there's all these insane synths and, you know, old school electromechanical keyboards. Yeah, it's we did it with Randall Dunn again in New York and Brooklyn that strange weather, beautiful studio. So, um, the roughs are just getting passed around now. We're going to pick out the, um, good stuff and move forward from there and, um, hopefully get this thing ready for release at the end of this year, 2023, but it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. There's so much stuff, hours of stuff. (laughs) It's going to be good.
0: I bet. That's exciting. And yeah, I love that project always so different and always like seat of your pants. You're not sure if your head's going to explode, if it's going to be a train crash, but by the end, you know, you just come out of this, just like sweating from, from just the sheer intensity, you know, and, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's takes a certain alchemy to create that, you know, people can play crazy stuff and be really talented, but there's a certain coalescing of energies with the three of you that, I really adore so i look forward to see the or hear the next chapter of that project and and you know we talk a lot about these instrumentalists and and i've heard you talk about how pop music and especially like jam music is really like guitar centric and and vocal centric and and you as a horn player you know you've said it different ways over there, but feel almost like relegated to the back whether it's physically the back of the stage back of the sound um. Yet you're not a horn section. You're Skaric. You are a unicorn. You exist in this space all your own, at least in our generation. Um, you know, I'm 44. So when I think of you, there's no real peers or people that do precisely what you do. I'm curious, uh, at what point in your journey, did you recognize that you wanted to maybe like be a guitar player on saxophone or add uh, sounds, scapes, uh, pedals, whatever, to adulterate the traditional saxophone uh, in a sort of like rock pop jam context. Uh, was that something you just did? Was it intentional? And, and where does that come into your playing?
1: Well, you know, like a lot of things, necessity is the mother of invention. Another great right. quote. Yeah. So it, it's really just that. It's like you start playing with certain people and oh it's not loud enough and this music is super high energy um i need to i need to get a, a microphone i need to get an amp i need to oh maybe i'll just put some distortion on here because this part it, well, i want this part section of music to sound different so yeah i, I was lucky in the in the mid to late 80s <clears throat> to be around some people that uh, taught me a lot about electronics, and um, especially, uh, yeah, people like James Reynolds, who's this, he was amazing um, synthesist and uh, producer, engineer, and would do all these laser shows, and he would produce a lot of like new age records and stuff like that. But mostly, kind of as a gig, um, but we would. Um, go over into his house a lot and improvise and we had this little group called I think it was called Bad Circus or something (laughs) and um, he was a very conceptual thinker because he was trained as a theater major and his studio was incredible Just all these incredible keyboards and and he just knew how everything worked and I was like I just kept hearing all this stuff in my head as a and I was just always just badgering him with all these questions. How do I do? You know, how do I get this? You know, so he advised me how to, you know, I got my first Lexicon multi effects processor, this LXP five, and and you know how to get the signal in there, how to get some unity gain, because I mean, there's a lot more stuff, resources for horn players, but in the '80s there was, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing made for horn players. There's nothing, you know, it's really hard to find information. There's nothing written. There's no interviews or, you know, you're trying to do research on it. You're really on your own. So you're constantly having to consult with people because when you go live, it's, you're just going to drive the sound people crazy. <laughs> right? right. If you have this jive rig, and you don't know what unity gain is and how to keep your signal the same from beginning to end, whether the effects are engaged or not. So it's still challenging, (laughs) but um, it's a little bit easier now. But so it was great then, you know, hanging out with him and, and learning about all this stuff. And he was turning me on to artists like John Hassell, uh, the great trumpet player just passed away recently. Um, and John Hassell was doing, using, um, pitch transformers, you know, and all had such a vibe compositionally and, uh, check out his records, like with Daniel Lanwan and stuff. He has, there's some amazing concert videos of him. It's, you know, he was doing that in like the late seventies and stuff. So, um, He's a super big inspiration. So, but um, yeah, that hanging out with James in Seattle in the 80s and then um, um, playing with this crazy trio, Sad Happy in Seattle in like 1990, 91, 92, which was super aggressive, loud, you know, instrumental music. That's when I started using the effects live, not just you know, in the studio and stuff. So that's kind of, and it was, you know, when you're a fan of Jimi Hendrix and you're trying to keep up sonically with this group, with this trio, it just kind of, that's just what happens. You find a rat pedal and you learn how to get inside it. I love that.
0: And yeah, you know, I was just always kind of taken aback by the, you just had this ability to just come in screaming with a very distorted sort of abstract sonic impact but in this sort of context we're not used to hearing that you might hear it on a guitar but uh it's very aggressive and I mean I'm a metalhead I love I love metal my whole life even to this day and you know I don't know I was going to ask if if there's like a heavy music influence you reference Hendrix but you know, he's heavy, but I mean, was there, was there, uh, you bringing anything from heavy music into it? Cause you know, you'll let out like a grindcore growl into the mic on your sax and you'll, you'll play a lot of like really guttural, deep, distorted tones. Uh, is that coming from a punk or metal influence or is that just
1: you getting hype, you know? Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm super into, you know, all kinds of punk rock and, and uh, like while I'm wearing a sun shirt or hoodie right now, which um, I actually play on one of their records. Um, but I only just a little piano part. I don't do any of the saxophone stuff with them. but for sure. I mean, I'm a huge Melvins fan. And I like more kind of like death metal kind of stuff, real riff based you know, kind of heavy stuff. So with saxophone, you know, I'm not playing chords and, um, and it's, you have to be, the distortion only works on certain parts of the horn where you have the bell tones and everything, the lower notes. Uh, so you have to write very specifically for it, but, you know, I just love that, all that energy and, you know, just, going crazy like that charlie doesn't like that as much so stanton and i we don't do it with <laughs> <laughs> he's not so into the rock thing so we focus on grooves and shuffles and really getting in the blues and all that kind of stuff but you know my other bands you know like skerrick band we're playing the saturday in seattle and you know other groups i'm always trying to sneak sneak that shit in there you know and you know Randall Dunn our engineer who does a lot of these records you know he works on a lot of black metal stuff and oh yeah, recorded Sun and gone on tour been their front of house engineer for years you know he's worked on tons of stuff so you know I'm friends with uh, Greg Anderson who runs Southern Lord, Raggeds Hall Metal Super Doomy of label and, and i've learned a lot about heavy music from randall and greg and stephen o'malley and um, stanton and i have a trio with pepper keenan called from curb corrosion Fe- curb feeler yeah from corrosion conformity so i mean we're stanton and i are all about it all the time so um, stanton wrote that song <clears throat> uh, drum department <laughs> it's on a garage and record with Marco and Mike Dillon and it's all, you know, super heavy riffs, And so uh, Dead Kenny G's was featuring that a lot. Yeah. Uh, Critters Buggin' has some really good, you know, features of that, like punk rock guilt, the song on Stampede. It's good examples of that. So and I'm trying to start a band this year, actually, that a trio where it's just distorted sax all the time, like every song where it's just I have a super heavy band called Lorbo. Our new record came out a year and a half ago, Um, but I play keys in that. And I use the Here's the Lorbo rig right there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like Marshall Marshall, Stack. Yeah, the Marshall (laughs) That's for the high part of the keyboard, kind of like a Rhodes sound. And then that's the bass rig for the low end sound. It's a split keyboard that I use. (laughs) Basically, it's like a Rhodes and then like a Moog bass synth. But I use a modern keyboard just so it doesn't feed back. Because I I think I'm the only person that's ever had a problem with the Rhodes feeding back. (laughs) Like I've asked every keyboard player friend of mine, you know, like, how do I get the roads to keep from feeding back? You know, like, they're like, what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do you mean? Like like no one is, is running it through a marshal. you know, like right. Right back, you know, like, so that's really fun, but it's not on saxophone, you know? So hopefully this year I'll have that together and that will be, that will be, I will be super happy if that happens.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> I I look forward to it. I got to check out this Lorbo, man. That sounds exciting. And I love Lorbo. Yeah.
1: Lorbo. L-O-R-B-O. Yeah. And we just put out this vinyl. It's on Bandcamp, L-O-R-B-O. It's awesome. It's um, Brad Moen, the singer from Master Musicians of Bukaki <laughs> and, and uh, Low Life. And then uh, Lupe Flores from uh, Tacos and Wild Powers. So it's drums and uh, vocals and keys. Good time.
0: Sounds awesome, man. I will put the link in the show notes for sure. Yeah, you know, I didn't really realize that you were playing that much. It sounds like every time you mention something, you're like, oh, well, I'm on keys on that. So at what point in time did did keyboard, have they always been a part of your arsenal? Is it something you've developed
1: later in life? I feel like I'm hearing you talk about playing a lot of keyboards. Yeah, I mean, I don't really. I just, I just use it In Critter's Bug and I was using it just as another little texture, get away from the saxophone sound and 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 then trying to play with the rhythm section more. You know, when the saxophone play steals the focus, kind of it's a it's it's like a singer in some ways. And it's it's hard to comp as a as a saxophone player. It's hard to play rhythmically with the band, just integrate with the rhythm section. so the keys was not is is really fun to do that i'm not a very good keyboard player at all it just super caveman stuff that i do i mean there's really great saxophone players that are amazing keyboardists like peter applebaum you know oh yeah that they just they've invested a lot of time in it you know they're astounding musicians i just do little parts little rhythmic things and just really simple stuff like that um, just on a need basis, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, but it's really fun and I love it. And I have tons of keyboards and love to overdub on that on people's sessions and and do stuff with my bands. It's really fun.
0: Right on, yeah. And it just adds, (laughs) like you said, more textures and brings you away from the sax and diversifies the sound. So yeah, that's dope. i I know we're working with limited time uh i got a couple more i wanted to uh we talked a lot of trios but uh one of the bands i really dug one of my first album reviews was for the self-titled syncopated taint septet record back in 03 yeah that was like one of the first album reviews like just here review this record uh for jam bass back in the day and You know, I've heard you talk about it on a pod or uh, maybe on an interview. You say that you get a lot of fans around the world coming up to you, talking to you about the syncopated Taint Septet. Uh, aside from the name, uh, what, uh, what do you think it is about that project that you know follows you around? Because it it's pretty niche and, and it's kind of like obscure, but it's not like a garage a trois or a frog brigade in terms of the notoriety. Uh, but sounds like people know what, what's up. What do you think about that project really hit with people?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, those, the live shows really created a lot of impact, but it's the number one band that people talk about and ask about by far whenever I'm on the road or you know touring and playing different cities or, or, it doesn't matter where I am. That everyone asks about that. They don't ask about Les Claypool. They don't ask about you know other people I've played with like Roger Waters or you know they don't ask about uh, the, all the other bands I've played in that sold tons more records. You know, you know it, it's really odd. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's it's very strange. But it's awesome, too, because that band was just really a labor of love, and everyone sacrificed a lot financially <laughs> went broke doing it, and you know, I'm still paying off you know records we made and legal fees trying to find our masters and everything, which is a whole nother awful you know episode mm-hmm. but um um it was just so magical. And, you know, you have five horns, Hammond organ and drums, and we're all from Seattle and we all knew each other. And there's just some really special composers in that group, you know, Hans Teuber and Steve Moore. And they also doubled on keys. There was a Wurlitzer. So there'd be the Hammond, Wurlitzer, the horns and drums and that rhythm section. I picked those guys because they were playing together all the time. Joe Dory and John Wicks. Um, And so they could, and they were into hip hop. They were, you know, they were great jazz players. They studied, you know, they could, they could just play everything. So when they had, um, they had a duo called Dose (laughs) and they played every week, you know, at a club in town, probably even more than that. And they could just go from a Michael Jackson tune to, a, you know, Jimmy Smith song to some hip hop thing, like just instantly, just no problem. I mean, yeah, I really wish that band was together today in, in certain ways. Cause I feel there's a whole nother, I feel like there's a whole new awareness of funk and hip hop and played by jazz musicians. That's really popular. And I think, you know, no one did it like the taint. The yeah, no one did it like, and no one continues to do. I don't see anything out there that or did it like that. we had really great compositions but also really amazing improvising and Randall Dunn I gotta say again Randall Dunn was our front of house engineer we were really lucky to have him on the road and some nights we would walk into a club and he goes we're not using the PA tonight we're not using the PA set up on the floor and play people really remember those gigs too because they would walk into a place like wow hall in Eugene and it's like, what's going on? No one's on the stage and we're playing all acoustically. I mean, obviously the organ is playing through Leslie, but you know, he's playing quieter and then we're walking around the space using the space. I mean, it's, you know, it creates, it's a real magical, you know, moment when you can have that flexibility or sometimes we'd be playing. I remember we played in um, San Francisco. I forget the name of that club. It had a, It was like a U shaped and had a balcony up top, kind of like Maison and Maison in um, New Orleans. What was the name of that place? Mm -hmm. San Francisco, I forget. It was in, was it in the mission? I forget, but you know, we'd come out and do an encore with like no PA or something. He turned the PA off and, and tell us to play acoustically. And it just, it just brings everyone together, you know, just like Maurice Brown, he has a great story. of. Um, uh, he's on tour with Anderson Park mm-hmm. and um, they're playing Madison Square Garden and Anderson's like, Maurice, I want you to walk and play trumpet from the other end of the stadium up to the stage because he would have Maurice open up shows, I think, too. Yeah. Thing, solo. And and Maurice was like, okay, I'll put my wireless on, you know, and have the thing. And he's like, no, you're going to play acoustic. Like, I think he even told him to play it with a mute on, with a mute in on the bell. <laughs> Something like that. You got to ask Maurice about it, man. I will. So it was, so, it was like such a cool idea. And Maurice was like, what? No one's going to hear it. You know, he's like, he's Anderson, like, trust me, it's going to be great. You know, I'm like, sure enough, man, he went and did it. Like, you know, I can't, I can't. I'm trying to remember the story, but I think it, Marie said it was great. It was a great, he said it was a great idea of Anderson, you know, to have that vision. You know there's cool examples when people take risks like that you know I think it creates a real direct connection with the audience and with people when they can get up close and they hear the instruments not through speakers but you know directly acoustically it's a real that's a real special uh, connection
0: yeah definitely and I've, I've seen that in a number of smaller things in New Orleans and you're right when it when when the horns come out into the audience and you're just hearing it straight out of the bell or whatever it's it's different it's it fills you in a different way. Um yeah. it's intimate but it just what you're describing at the garden with like whatever 18,000 people and Maurice <laughs> yeah. I mean wow that's incredible and that's a yeah, risk. Yeah, and of
1: course Maurice <laughs> can pull it off. He's incredible. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. All right, I got one more for you. Uh I could talk forever. Maybe we'll do it again down the road because, you know, it's a long list of projects you've been a part of and, you know, I'd love to talk about them all. But, uh, you know, you're a Seattle guy and you existed and performed uh, during the Seattle era. But, you know, you've obviously transcended that geographically and generationally. But a lot of people really hold on to your contributions to the Mad Season record and and the live performance from the Moore. And I'm sure you've been asked about it a million times. I even asked you about it the last time we talked. you were like on tour with critters Buggin, and, and this opportunity came through and you had a, your friends with Barrett. Did you know, uh, that, that this was going to be something like that would be held on to fans around the world forever. Did it feel like just a gig at the time? Let's take us back there to the moment you get the call and, and you perform with them and, and just that whole moment in time with mad season. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it, it, for me, it was just another gig for sure. Because I was on tour with Critters Buggin, and um, I think we were in Colorado. We were doing a bunch of shows in Colorado. Then we had a couple of days off, and then we're going to Texas to do a bunch of shows around there. Because a couple of those guys were from Texas, Mike D. and Brad Hauser. And then Matt had spent a little bit of time at North North Texas State University, Um, but just a little bit. So we had a always had a good um vibe in Texas. So somehow the gig when Barrett Martin the drummer for Mad Season and Screaming Trees when he um called me for the gig, you know we had already played together and I had played on their album um on that one song. So you know, I was like, "Oh, let me see if I can do it." You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, a, right? You weren't yeah, just dropping no, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, "Oh yeah, um, yeah, I can do it." I, I kind of forget the the details. Mike D or Brad would remember for sure. But anyway, it's, it ended up working out, and so I went down to the gig. You know, went to sound check, and and Barrett is really generous guy and and really inclusive and he's really trying to like make the show really special and he he wants everything to be great and so he was oh can well can you play percussion on a couple of tunes too and can you play vibraphone on this song you know like so i was like okay cool and it was really cool that he would you know that he was trying to that he would trust me with that with those instruments and everything that i don't usually play and uh it was really fun so i wasn't just playing sax on one song or two songs at the show you know i was playing percussion and stuff you know i was just having fun it, it you know it to me it was just kind of like oh what is this like some bunch of rock dudes with their <laughs> you know they made all this money and it's kind of just like some spinal tap shit you know like is this like super group? You know, why aren't they in their bands? You know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was like, I don't know. I, you know, the the Seattle rock thing in the eighties and nineties, it was really tough, you know, as someone who loved live music. I mean, I was a live music freak. I had ticket stubs all over my wall and everything. <clears throat> I was going to concerts all the time since the seventies. My dad, just you know, took me when I was a kid all the time, every jazz show that was in Seattle. So whenever I went to like local rock shows in Seattle, it was nine out of 10 times. It was like super disappointing because you got to remember back then the PAs were like shit. Just the crappiest PV kind of stuff. It just sounded like ass in there. And like, I think you really needed to be committed to that scene. So because one out of every 10 shows was like, there was something magical was happening, right? You were going to see Nirvana on a good night, you know, and cause, and, and all these guys will be the first in Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. I mean, all, all of them will be the first to tell you what I'm saying too. It's like, yeah, it's true. It was like, you know, we, we were just learning our instruments back then and it was rough. The sound systems were shitty. You know, maybe we didn't have a sound check. You know, it was, It was not like, you know, that's the real, you know, at the street level kind of like shit, you know, it's not, you know, you don't just go like people's impression of Nirvana is from their records or they see a DVD video or they see them on MTV unplugged or something. That's not, that's not (laughs) where those guys come from, you know, they didn't start playing in rio with pat smear and stuff you know what i mean <laughs> the second guitar yeah. play with a, with a killer second guitar player you know like that's not you know they were just young guys trying to figure it out too dave grohl talks about it all the time we didn't know what we were doing we just fucking played every day you know or whatever you know and and so for me like going to these famous clubs like the vogue They weren't famous at the time at all. Just dives, you know. So going to these places and seeing bands, you know, it just, it really, it really sucked. So I didn't, I stopped checking a lot of that music out, you know, and I was more into like jazz stuff and everything too. So anyway, at that time, you know, I'm much more into rock stuff now, but back then, you know, in my twenties, I was much more into, you know nerdy jazz stuff and trying to learn saxophone yeah so it was very few shows that were memorable and sounded good I remember one it was Halloween at the Central and saw 247 Spies oh yeah yeah that was amazing and it was one of the best shows they had on that tour and they broke up because they were fighting all the time I guess (laughs) and um, I later became friends with those guys actually with my band sad happy and we went to electric lady um land studios in Hendrix studio in new york and we're uh watching them mix or something with terry date or something it was awesome you know wow i almost got to play sax on something too but then branford marsalis came and <laughs> i was like i was like oh shit okay good you know like oh good that worked out those are just great guys and amazing band amazing musicians yeah so i was really lucky to see you know fishbone and parliament funkadelic and 247 spies on the good nights you know what i mean like the killer yeah. nights they were much more consistent too as bands and much better musicians than the seattle bands and you know just just way it was a completely different experience so those are the shows that had the most impact on me. So when the mad season thing came by, you know, I was there for Barrett, you know, he just was into all kinds of different kinds of music and, and was just so inclusive and open-minded. Oh, cause a lot of rock guys too, that in Seattle, they they were super close-minded and, you know, they didn't listen to different kinds of music and, you know, it was just really boring for, for me, you know, it wasn't, interesting at all you know so um but you know i'm still friends with barrett to this day and it's and it's and he's just obviously he he started to Atara after that and, yeah you know got into all this other kinds of music and everything and he has a, a prolific solo career making solo records and writing books and everything you know you know i could see him on that path then you know for sure and I was there for him definitely, but I'm glad it worked out, man, you know, but now I have a whole different respect for that, for those bands and, you know, and, and very fond memories and, and looking back at it and then being able to play with the Seattle symphony and Chris Cornell, you know, I'm standing right next to Chris Cornell, redoing all those songs and he's singing all Lane's parts you know, a few years ago, was that 2016 or something? You know that was that was really fun and you know it was really great and you know it was really sad too that that was you know last time i saw chris um cornell so just a lot of tragedy with all those bands too yeah lane's gone and i mean thank god uh you know Lanigan mark is still around yeah yeah just got and his one book of, Oh my God. I was just going to say, I want to read his new, I read an excerpt of it. It's just yeah. incredible. It's just like, yeah. what? Yeah. And he's just one of my favorite singers. And, and now when I look back, you know, I have a whole nother appreciation for Lane singing. I mean, I mean, I mean, what are the odds that, you know, these singers like Chris Cornell and Lane Staley and Mark Lanigan, you know, so advanced and, and such unique vocalists you know i mean i used to think a lot of sound garden stuff was super corny like like really bad metal kind of thing but when you break it down musically you know you know singing all these rhythmic phrases over the bar line stuff and everything it's just like man it's 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 really something special
2: you know yeah and definitely all
1: vocal harmonies that Lane was doing and everything, you know, it's just it it really is, you know, they really were special.
2: Yeah. Know?
1: There wasn't just some hype shit. There, there's some there's some really great musicians in that band. like Matt Cameron. I mean, what an incredible drummer, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I did a gig with Matt Cameron a couple of years ago with Wayne Horvitz. Yeah. We were playing some extremely difficult. We played a Roscoe Mitchell song, Nonea. I, I can't. I don't think. I don't know how it's pronounced, but you know, we're all reading this chart. It has metric modulation all over. It. He memorized the dance. <laughs> showed up at rehearsals. I, like, I was like, "Do you need a music stand? You need you for your training He goes, "No, that's cool. You know, I got it. You know." It was just like, "Whoa!" I mean, yeah, it was like, <laughs> "There's not even jazz musicians in town like that were doing that." So,
0: I love the history. I really love just to hear the the relationships and the history and how the music has, you know, caught up to you or you caught up to it, but it might have bored you in 95 and, you know, in 2022, it, it, not so much. You understand the, the depth yeah. and the power and it was ahead of its time. And if you think about vocalists, when you close your eyes and you can just hear a note and you know it's them, I mean, Lane, Cornell, I mean, come on, those guys... The, the iconic pipes, you know, like uh, yeah. only sound like themselves. Although a million people have tried to imitate both of them in the, in the aftermath. But, you know, I, I if I could pick one of those bands from that era, it's Alice and Chains. I, I love them to this day. And it's just really, really resonates with me. So I'm a big fan of Mad Season and uh, yeah, I've always kind of wondered how you ended up involved. So thanks for breaking it down. <laughs> so I just wanted to, again, thank you and and say thanks for the music. Thanks for the time. And of course, you know, down the road when you have more stuff cooking and you want to tell the world, I'm happy to be the platform to let the people know what you got coming out. So
1: be on the lookout for new dark wave and new sound cipher, new sound cipher record just got sent to the record plant in new Orleans for vinyl. What's that project? That's, um, Tim Alexander, drummer from Primus. Yeah, Herb, right. Yeah. Herb, yeah. And um, Tim Mason, amazing uh, modular synth person and bassist. He toured a little bit with Master Musicians of Bukaki and some other groups. He's um, really incredible, he does this, the, the whole modular synth thing, and it, it, it's a really unique. Thing. So, man, it's that is a super fun project. And again, Randall done tying it all together. And He's the
0: Kevin quick. Bacon of all your projects. <laughs> Not even <laughs> six degrees of separation. Right. Right on. Sounds like we're on it.
1: Yeah, we're man. We're on
0: it. I look forward to it, Dark Wave. And yeah, man, thanks again for everything. And uh, we'll be in touch down the road.
1: All right, B. Thanks, man. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, indeedy. want to say large up and big thanks to my man Ski Rack. Thanks to Scarrick coming through the Up For Life podcast, laying it down. You know, I have to say it was a very interesting and thought-provoking and illuminating conversation. You know, it's a tough nut to crack, that Skerek, but uh, I'm glad I got him for a little over an hour. He could fill us in on just a smidge of the wide breadth of of his artistic uh, prowess and scope wingspan my man is just he's all over the place in all the best ways and serious as a motherfucker about his craft an artist making art for art's sake gotta gotta toast that gotta send that up uh tons of respect so thanks to Scarik. Hopefully we'll get to do it again down the road. Second time I talked to him. First time for the pod. And I feel good about it. Hope you all enjoyed that. Please subscribe to the pod. If you're picking up what we're putting down. Just smash that subscribe button. And if you're, if you're so inclined and have the time. Please rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts. Or really your, your platform of choice. It really helps out with the algo rhythms like I told you a time or two before. And if you have any commentary or or you want to uh, make a suggestion or uh, send some constructive criticism, feedback, suggestions for guests, hit me up by way of the email b.getz at upfullife.com, b.getz at upfullife.com. Love to hear from the listeners, and we appreciate you. I appreciate you. You can stop by upfullife.com, check out Guan, and if you're feeling it, there's a donate button on upfullife.com. Much appreciated. And with that, like we always do about this time, we're going to get into the Vibe Junkie Jam, and I had to take it back to New Orleans, had to take it to Tipitina's Uptown, the year was 2002. Uh, Colonel Claypool's Fearless Flying Frog Brigade. Ski Rack, as Les himself would call him, in the Red Devil suit. Claypool with the helmet. You had Mike Dillon. You had Enor on guitar. Robert Walter's 20th Congress opened. It's a legendary show in Jazz Fest lore. I'm going to play uh, a few songs from it for the vibe junkie jam uh holy mackerel highball with the devil cosmic highway so that's gonna do it for episode 56 of the up for life podcast i'm packing up uh i'm headed to the crescent city for jazz fest after two years of of silence i guess is it three because there's been we missed two jazz fests i guess it's three years yeah um I can't wait to get back. i got to make a stop in Los Angeles on the way. But uh, you'll be hearing from us on the other side. And hopefully I'll have some content from Jazz Fest. I'm bringing the mics. I'm bringing my podcast machine. Uh, yeah, have, have Zoom. We'll travel. So uh, with that, we'll say goodbye. God bless. And we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy.
2: And I gotta say, my highlight though was the, the last show, Jazz Fest for me, it was Sunday Night at Tibetina's Les Lapel. And that was out there. Be waiting, we'll the power. don't know him, you don't love him, but you may grow to, Mr. D.